0: Colossians 1, uh, I'm going to read from verses 15 to 20. And um, just like the Beatitudes, we finished the series on the Beatitudes, just like the Beatitudes, I think Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is a great passage in Scripture um, to memorize because it's probably the most descriptive passage in the New Testament about who Jesus is. So... um, So, a good way to memorize it is just each week we're going to take one description. So, I would try to memorize that description each week, and then you'll be able to have Colossians 1 15 to 20 memorized. So, let me read it for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this beautiful portion of Scripture that describes in beautiful detail the glories of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage tonight and in the coming weeks, we pray that by your Spirit you would help us not just to understand, but to delight in what we are understanding. To treasure this Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray that you would do this for the sake of His name and for our good. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, on our website, um, Royal York Baptist Church.com, if you haven't checked it out, you should. Um, I wrote these words We exist to behold and proclaim the beauty of Christ for the joy of all people. And I wrote those words and I haven't really done a series yet on why I think that's what we should be about as a church. We exist to behold and proclaim the beauty of Christ for the joy of all people. This I believe is the mission of Christ's church. Not just any church, but Christ's church. Now, every church can describe or explain that mission and vision a little bit differently, but it all captures, in one sense, the same reality. On the one hand, as Christians, we are called to behold the beauty of Christ. That is, by faith, to behold him in his person, who he is, but also his works, what he's done and is doing, and also his words, what he has said to us. All that is inherently beautiful and excellent in Him, our job as the people of God, our privilege is to behold Him in that way. And as Christians, we believe that in beholding Him, through the eyes of faith, we are being transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 alludes to this, where Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, or the beauty of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Spirit, from the Lord who is the Spirit. This really is in one sense the telos, the, the goal of the Christian life. The beatific vision in which we behold God in his very essence. This is where creation and redemption are headed. That one day we will see God in his very essence and live. Now, not only do we exist to behold Christ in his beauty, but we also exist to proclaim the beauty of Christ. We proclaim him through our words, through the preaching of the gospel, and and also through our works, through our lives. We make known to the world the beauty and wonder of all that Christ is and all that he's accomplished on behalf of sinners. Peter alludes to this in 1 Peter 2, 9, where he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what we're called to do, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has delivered us from darkness and has brought us into his marvelous light. And we do this as the statement says on our website, for the joy of all people. That is, that the world would experience the everlasting joy of beholding and knowing Christ to the glory of God. That's what I believe we're to be about as Christians. That's what I believe we ought to be about as a church. And really, that's all I want to do in this mini-series of Colossians one to 15-20. I want to proclaim Christ to help each of us behold him in his beauty so that our hearts will overflow with joy and delight in who he is and in all all that he's done for us. See, I think we can all confess that over this past year, there's been times in which we lost our focus. That is, we've allowed this pandemic, government lockdowns, government overreach... Um, our circumstances to to really get the worst out of us at times. And it's so easy, it's been so easy this past year to take our eyes off of Jesus. We start to see the world through the lens of the world rather than through the mind of Christ. And really all, all I hope to do is to help us refocus our hearts and minds on that which we love most namely Jesus, that despite all that is happening, Jesus Christ has not changed and all that we have in him hasn't changed either. We're still eternally loved by him. We're still being sanctified by him. We're still his adopted children. We still have an imperishable, unfading inheritance being kept for us. We still have a future glory that Paul says in Romans 8 that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to that future glory. We still have a Savior who ever lives to make intercession for us. None of that has changed in this past year, despite our circumstances changing. And so I hope that we're able to refocus our hearts and our minds on Christ and his excellencies, not as a means of escapism, but as a means of giving us something to stand upon in the midst of the cracked foundations of our world. And this is why I want us to focus our attention here on Colossians 1:15 to 15-20 over the next several weeks. This passage, as I said at the beginning, is in many ways the fullest, most descriptive passage about who Jesus is in all of the Scriptures. Now, before we dig into the first description, I want to give us a little bit of context that will help us moving forward. One of the reasons Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Christians in Colossae was, was to reaffirm that Christ alone was worthy of their allegiance and worship. Because of who he is and his complete supremacy over all that is. It's clear from Colossians 2.18 that, That there there were false teachers insisting on the worship of angels. And Paul wants to make it vividly clear that Jesus, as the God-man, both fully God and fully man, is the only one worthy of our worship. All other worship is idolatry. So in Colossians 1, 9 to 14, he expresses what he has been praying for the believers in Colossae. And there's several things that he prays on their behalf. So look at look at Colossians 1, 9 to 14. So this is what Paul says to them. And so from the day we heard, that is the day we heard about their faith and their growing in their faith, he says this. We have not ceased to pray for you. And then he tells us what he was asking in his prayers. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with spiritual wisdom, understanding why. And he says this, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. That's what it looks like to be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. God wants you and I, Paul is praying that you and I would walk in a manner worthy of God. And that looks like bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We need that right now. All endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Then he says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of of sins. That's what he's praying for them. Some of the most glorious truths in that prayer. But here's what I want you to see. He desires for us to increase in the knowledge of God in order that we would be fully pleasing to him. Not only that, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You and I have been taken from the kingdom of this, the darkness, the kingdom of this world, and have been transferred into the kingdom of his son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Of sins, And really what Paul does next in verses 15 to 20 is he begins to unpack and describe who this beloved son is, who this king is. And the first thing that he tells us is that Jesus Christ is the visible revelation of the invisible God. In verse 15, he says he is the image of the invisible God. What does this mean? Well, simply put, Jesus Christ in the incarnation, that is, the Son of God clothed in humanity, is the perfect visible representation of the transcendent God. In other words, apart from Jesus Christ, humanity's attempt at knowing God is, is futile and at best deeply limited. Jesus Christ has made known to us God. That's what Paul's saying. In John 1.18, uh, John says this, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But then he says this, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is the Son, he has made him known. Now, this doesn't mean that God had not revealed himself before the coming of Jesus. We know that not to be true. The Old Testament clearly demonstrates that God has revealed himself before the coming of Jesus. The prophets, God spoke through the prophets. God revealed himself through the through the, the speaking of the prophets and the writing of the prophets. We also have the Theophanies in the Old Testament, right, where God manifests His glory in unique ways. For example, you have uh, Moses in the uh, the burning bush or you have God descending on Mount Sinai. It was a theophany, it was a manifestation of God's glory. He used the material means to capture something of His glory. We also have creation. Creation is a revelation of God. That's what Romans 1.20 alludes to where Paul says, for His invisible attributes Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the invisible attributes of God, and he describes them, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. When you look at creation, Paul's saying you can clearly perceive the invisible attributes of God. That is his eternal power and divine nature. And because of that, man is without excuse. You see, it's not as though God has never revealed himself in certain ways and at different times until Jesus. But Christ is the fullest revelation of God. He reveals God in ways that are utterly unique. From the past. As Stephen Dubey states, within scripture, Jesus is presented as the culminating moment of God's revelation, not the first or only moment. See, when we see that word image, the image of God, a lot of passages ought to come to our minds. For example, Genesis 1 and 2, right, speaks of humanity being made in the image and likeness of God. 1 Corinthians 11 says, uh, speaks about man being made or being the image and glory of God. Now, because of this, some heretical groups, for example, like Jehovah Witnesses, have argued that, that Jesus actually isn't God, but that he's simply the greatest revelation of what God is like. He's the one who reveals to us what God is most like, while he himself not being God. Just like you and I, in a sense, are image bearers of God, we, in a, in a sense, reveal God in some capacity. <clears throat> now, there's several problems with this. And the first is simply this, that one verse later, we're told that he's the creator, which of course is a de- designation given only to God, which we see in Genesis chapter 1. Not only this, Colossians two nine tells us, for in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily the whole fullness of deity dwells in the body of jesus now we could we could spend a lot of time looking at multitudes of passages that affirm christ as god but here's another way to think about it just as jesus is called the son of god you and i are also called sons and daughters of god but the sonship of jesus is unique you see, you and I were considered sons and daughters of God through adoption, right? In other words, we're children of God by grace. But that's not true of Jesus Christ. He's not the Son of God by grace. He's the Son of God by his very own nature. He shares the same being, the same essence of God. That's what makes him unique. And it's the same when we think of him being the image of of the invisible God. You and I, by creation and grace, are image bearers of God. We reflect God in a very limited capacity because of his grace. Whereas Jesus Christ is the image of God, not by creation or grace, but by his very own nature. He shares the same essence as God. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 affirms this, where the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Then he says this He is the radiance of the glory of God. Can you say that about yourself? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature the exact imprint of his nature. No creature, no created being could be described as the exact imprint of God's divine nature. Only the Son of God can. Only Jesus Christ, the one who is divinity clothed in humanity. Jesus Christ sharing the same essence of God reveals God in a way that is utterly unique from all other revelations of God. John Calvin states this in reference to Jesus being the image of the invisible God. It's a a long quote, but I think it's an important one. He says this, the term image has a reference to us as humans, for Christ is called the image of God on this ground that he makes God in all manner visible to us. At the same time, we gather also from this his identity of essence. For Christ would not truly represent God if he were not the essential word of God, inasmuch as the question here is not as to those things which by communication are suitable also to creatures. That is, is, you and I as creatures of God, God has ordained that in some fashion you and I, can communicate certain truths about God in our creatureliness. But he's speaking here as things that do not pertain to creatures. This is where he goes on to say, But the question is as to the perfect wisdom, goodness, righteousness, and power of God for for the representing of which no creature were competent. In other words, you and I can, can communicate certain ideas about God as creatures made in God's image, but none of us have the capacity in and of ourselves to communicate the perfect wisdom, goodness, righteousness, and power of God. We are utterly incompetent in doing that as creatures. And then he says this, the sum is this, that God in himself, that is in his naked majesty, is, Is invisible, and that not to the eyes of the body merely, but also to the understanding of men, and that he has revealed to us in Christ alone that we may behold him as in a mirror. It is only Christ that is able to reveal those attributes of God that alone belongs to God. You see, as Christians, we can say to a certain degree that our lives reveal or represent God. But none of us can say like Jesus did in response to Philip's request to see our Heavenly Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Mm -hmm. Only Christ is able to do such a thing and to make such a claim. So what does this all mean? What are the implications of this so what if Jesus is the invisible God? What does that mean for my life? Well, the first thing is this, and this is the scary thing. It means you're without excuse. It means you're without excuse. In Romans 1.18, which I read earlier, a part of it, um, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And then he tells us how. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If humanity is without excuse... In light of the revelation of God through creation. How much more in light of the revelation of God in the face of Jesus. There's a reason why Jesus says that it will be better on the day of judgment for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the generation that he was speaking to. They had a greater revelation than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Greater revelation from God comes with greater responsibility and greater accountability to God. Secondly, all understanding and true knowledge of God comes to us by way of revelation, particularly in the person of Christ. The scriptures make clear that as finite creatures, finite fallen creatures, it's utterly impossible to gain any knowledge or understanding of God in and of ourselves. God is utterly infinite, infinite beyond human comprehension. And the only way that any human being can have any knowledge of God is due to God willingly revealing himself. For example, even the person who's not a Christian who uses their reason To conclude that there must be an all-powerful eternal creator by observing the beauty and order of creation has done so by revelation. Because creation itself is a means of God's revelation. And the only reason why you and I are able to know God is because God has revealed himself to us, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of of God's revelation. This is why Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Do you remember how Jesus defines eternal life in John 17:3? And this is eternal life: that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Because of Jesus, being the image of the invisible God, we're able to know the only true God. Which leads to the third and final implication. Jesus being the image of the invisible God reveals the overflowing fountain of God's grace towards us creatures. God has no obligation to reveal himself to us. He had no obligation to make his glory known through creation. And he had no obligation to make himself known through the person of Christ. The only reason for revealing himself to us is because he is the God of all grace. And he has done it in such a way. He has revealed himself in such a way that we're able to bear it understand it. Many ask, why did God choose to clothe himself in humanity in the person of Jesus? Why not just reveal himself as he is? There's a lot of biblical answers for this, but one of the reasons is this. If God were just to reveal himself as he is, we could not bear it nor understand it. Jesus coming as divinity clothed in humanity, has enabled us to be able to bear the weight of God and understand God. Stephen Duby says, Creatures, especially fallen ones, do not have the capacity to behold the glory of God in its infinite fullness and holiness. Think about it this way. The people of Israel could barely tolerate the countenance of Moses' face in Exodus 34, 29 to 35, after he had spoken with God. They could barely tolerate it. It was too much for them, too much glory. And John Chrysostom said in light of Israel and Moses, that passage in Exodus 34, how could we then behold, bare Godhead? How could we then behold, bare Godhead? We can't. But through Christ, we're able to behold the glory of God, as Chrysostom says, through a body like ours. Through a body like ours. See, God dwells, we know, in an unapproachable light. He's unapproachable. We, we, we can't even look at the brightness of the sun on a sunny day. Aquinas, reflecting on why God chose to reveal himself through the the bodily person of Jesus, he said this, Weak and infirm eyes are not able to see the light of the sun, but then they are able to see it when it shines in a cloud or in some opaque body. In other words, God has shone his glory in the person of Jesus Christ so that we can actually behold the glory of God without dying just as we can behold the light of the sun in a cloud without going blind. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily, and because of this we can behold the glory of God and the works of God through the person of Jesus. Not only does Jesus, being the image of God, allow us to behold God, it also allows us to understand to a greater degree the incomprehensibleness of God. How can we, in any way, comprehend or understand God, who is utterly different than all created things? He's an entirely different being from all created being. And the answer to that question is, we simply can't. We cannot understand God. But through Jesus Christ, God stoops down to our level. And he enables us to understand to a certain degree the incomprehensible realities of God. As Stephen Duby states, the son's assumption of a human nature brings the knowledge of God to us in a manner suited to the conditions of our way of knowing in this life. And this, friends, is why Jesus, being the image of the invisible God, reveals to us the overflowing fountain of God's grace towards us creatures. We now, by the image of God, that is Jesus Christ, can now, can know and behold the God of life. That which is incomprehensible is now knowable in Jesus. That which is unapproachable is now approachable in Jesus. That which is invisible is now visible in Jesus. And so here's my exhortation to us, and really my exhortation that covers this whole series. It comes from Hosea 6.3, where Hosea says, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. That's my prayer for this series, that we would press on to know the Lord in the face of Of Jesus Christ. This is our Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you that in your mercy and grace you have made yourself known, you have revealed yourself in the face of your glorious Son. We thank you for that precious gift. And we simply ask, Father, that by your Spirit, we would press on to know Christ in all of his fullness, to know our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to treasure our triune God. We pray this in Christ's name.